WFIA welcomes you to The Art Parlor, where visually impaired artists of all types will discuss their work. Pull up a chair, bring your beverage of choice, and listen to thoughtful, stimulating conversations with visually impaired artists in all media and from all parts of the world. And now, here are your hosts, Anne and Peter. Welcome to this month's episode of The Art Parlor, brought to you by Friends in Art. Friends in Art is a place where visually impaired artists and audience members thrive. Tonight, we're going to speak to editor-in-chief and author Chris Cool. He's going to be releasing his first novel called Morris in the next few months, and I can't wait to read it. So let's talk to Chris and hear a little bit about his life and what brought him into this craft of writing. Chris Cool is a writer and advocate living in Connecticut. A former research chemist, he lost his sight as the result of diabetic retinopathy. He learned how to use a computer with speech output and turned his efforts to writing. His essays and stories have appeared in a number of literary and a few not-so-literary magazines, journals, and newsletters. He's edited several books and anthologies and is the editor of Breath and Shadow, an online literary journal of disability, culture, and ideas. So, let's get to talking to Chris with our co-host, Peter Ochel and our audience members. Welcome, Chris. How are you doing today? Thank you, Annie. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate the invitation to be here. Sure. Why don't you just tell us who you are, what you do uh, in relation to uh, into writing, maybe, maybe some of your, your um, personal history, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll kind of ask you questions along the way. How does that sound? That sounds fine. Okay, cool. So I'm Chris Kuhl. I live in Connecticut. I actually grew up loving science, so I was sighted until I was 35, and up until that point, I went to college and got a bachelor's degree in chemistry, and I went on to get a PhD in chemistry, and I worked for a number of years for a Swiss pharmaceutical company uh, doing medicinal chemistry, and then when I was 35, I went blind as a result of diabetic retinopathy. At that time, I was married. I had a nine-month-old and a four-year-old, and it really turned my world upside down. And I wasn't really sure what to do with myself. I wanted to continue in the science, except for I, I was blind and I, was, I had no idea how to do things as a blind scientist. I, I have a better appreciation for that now, but you know that was 25 years ago and uh, I lost my opportunity. I did try science writing for a while and didn't have much luck at it. So I got involved with uh, various blindness organizations. Um, I have friends in the ACB and the NFB, and they were very helpful to me in learning how to be a capable, competent blind person. But it, it took several years. Mm. Uh, along the way, I did a lot of reading, and I happened to indirectly meet a blind woman in West Virginia who belonged to an online group called the West Virginia Writers, and she invited me to join and. I started playing around with, with writing fiction and essays. Uh, I, I wrote a poem here and there, but I don't have really much of a flair for poetry, although I enjoy it. And I decided this is something that I wanted to do when I, I began to work on the craft. And so I started by writing short stories, and I had a couple 
published. And then I had the idea that you know, if I was going to make any money at this, the best way for me to do it would be to write a novel. And so by mingling with other writers and online is a great avenue for that, I was able to get into a, a couple of different critique groups. And I met people online where we had writing challenges to you know, write a certain amount of words and post it and kind of give us the nudge that I need. I'm, I'm easily distracted. And so having a deadline, having a goal helps me to produce more work. I wrote a couple of novels, sent them out. I got interest from agents, but I, I never got any bites. Along the way, I had a couple of short stories published with Breath and Shadow, which is one of the oldest online literary journals for disabled people in the United States that, that pays its authors. Sharon Watzler, who was the editor when I first got published there, asked me if I'd be interested in being an assistant editor. And then as she was having health problems, I became the managing editor. And eventually she stepped down and, and I became the editor-in-chief. And I've been doing that for uh, about 14 years now. And it's... it's Wow, has it been that long? <laughs> it, it really it has. Yeah, it's, it's, wow. it's hard to believe. Um, yeah. It's very rewarding work. You know, the hardest part is rejecting people. You know, mm. we get... And over COVID, what I will say is our, the number of submissions we receive has probably quadrupled. I didn't keep careful numbers back in the day. I keep better track now. Uh, we got a lot of submission. And, and we were a quarterly publication. And since we pay, we don't publish that many pieces. So we're very selective. And, and it's hard because, look, yeah. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a writer. I'm a person with a disability. I have a voice. I want to be heard, as do all the people who submit to us. And, you know, it, it's hard. So I try and be very careful when sending out rejection letters and I try and add words of promise or encouragement to people to, to keep at it. You know, it's a competitive world. You know, you have to have thick skin if you're a writer or else I, I don't I don't see how you stick with it. That's a good so, point. So I enjoy the editing and uh, I, I do personal editing. I do a lot of submission management is is what I do. And uh, that's rewarding work. I, I still enjoy writing. I am in the process of currently publishing a collection of interlinked short stories. I, I got the galley proof this week, which was very exciting. Oh, um, great. I'm totally blind. So my wife is looking it over for any errors or mistakes, but she's, she's very happy with the cover and how it looks. And so far, she's only found one minor typo. So Things are moving along in that direction. And now I get to face the part that I, I am looking forward to the least, which is marketing. I'm a natural born writer in that I'm somewhat of an introvert and I don't mind being alone at home writing. You know, I, that's what I enjoy. I enjoy creating. I love editing. I like revising. Um, you know, I talk on the phone. I do this. I do that. But marketing is not really my forte, but I'm going to dive into this to try and make, uh, you know, my hope is that people will enjoy my book and tell other people about it and the word will spread. So, so Chris, that's, a, that's, a, that's a quick synopsis of who I am. Sorry, what'd you say? No, I, I thank you. Thank you for that. And so I'm really intrigued from your sort of transition from Chris chemist to Chris writer slash editor that the two don't often, uh, you know, combine very effectively in my experience. So talk about your interest in science. You were presumably <clears throat> raised sort of, as sort of in, in the sciences, how did that work? How, what, what prompted you to get interested in chemistry? Well, you know, 
I was always interested in science. You know, I can remember being in, in fifth grade and sixth grade and science was my favorite class. When I was in seventh grade, I, I grew up in Cincinnati. And at that time, they had like clusters of students and the, the science curriculum at that time was a work at your own pace, you know, read the material, do an experiment, take a test mm-hmm. and work your way through the science book. Um, I remember that too. <laughs> okay. So I know, you know, I never mm-hmm. thought about it this way, but I, I actually completed the science book in about January. Um, oh. And so my teacher had me kind of be what, what I know today, a, a teaching assistant. Like I, I helped the other kids. And I won a science award. And, and this memory is very strong for me. Um, so I won the science award for being the best seventh grader in a, in a relatively large school district. And it came with a field trip to Ohio State University and a tour of all the science labs. And um, at that time, because this was the uh, early 70s, I got to see where they had implanted a Jarvac artificial heart, which had just been invented a few years before in a cow. And I just, I just loved it. And so I fell in love with Ohio State University. And from there on, I decided this science was my path. And I, you know, I took biology in ninth grade, chemistry in 10th grade, physics in 11th grade, and, and chem two in, uh, as a senior. And then as an added bonus, a small company that made flavors and fragrances nearby us wanted a high school kid to work afternoons. Uh, They called my science teacher, my chemistry teacher at that time, and he posted it. I applied for the job, got the job, and I enjoyed it so much. And I was was actually doing so well in school that I I became a co-op student. So I only went to school my senior year until noon. And then I went to work and I worked in a lab. And while it was work, I I loved it. You know, and I, so I was always a, a science person. I'm not the strongest mathematician and and chemistry. I thought at that time when I was young, that chemistry explained everything that happened in the world. And on a certain level, it does. What I know now that I'm older and smarter and have two degrees in science is that chemistry can be broken down into physics and physics can be broken down into math. And math is really where science is at especially as a blind person, that's not easy for me because I didn't grow up knowing Nemeth math or anything like that. Um, So I did try to write some science articles because I thought that might be a new career path for me. Yeah, what's that like? How is it it the same as, what's the difference between writing the the dry, factual uh, articles versus letting your mind go into fiction. I mean, it has to be some kind of switch or something. Well, it's a, least, it, it took you know. a while. It took a while. Okay. And it, it's interesting you say that because you're, you're exactly right. I mean, science writing is very dry and it's, you know, just the facts. Mm-hmm. And you know, I used to have to write quarterly reports and I, used yeah, to, you yeah. know, I, I, but you're, the thing is, is that you're writing, you're still writing, even though it's dry, but it, but it is very different. It, it mm-hmm. took, it took me a while to make the transition to fiction writing. And early on, one of, one of the things I had to learn was to, to give more detail and to pay more attention to you know, setting and description and dialogue. Um, mm, okay. I'm, I'm self-taught early on. I did take, you know, because again, as a scientist, even though I, I have a PhD in chemistry, I only took one English class and that was like freshman English. So 
I, I did take the creative writing course through the Hadley School for the Blind. And mostly I, I'm self-taught. I knew that if I wanted to get good at this, I had to practice the craft. And I, I've read any number of, of books on writing, some, some good, some not so good. But I've picked up tips along the way. And I think by, by exchanging work with other writers, and I, I, I've said this before, and I will say it uh, again and again, I, I think critiquing and studying others' people work is one of the best ways to spot what's wrong with your own work. Because mm-hmm. um, when you don't love the words, you know, you're, you fall in love with your own words, but when you're reading other people's words, you can see, oh, this, this person's a windbag, or there's no <laughs> setting here, or you know, they keep <clears throat> the word and over and over and over mm-hmm. again, or maybe they have other ticks. So you see that in others' writing, it's easier. And analyzing others' writing about, okay, what works here? What doesn't work here? What would I do to make this piece better? I think by by doing those exercises, you naturally develop that with your own writing. Now, you know, I'll admit, you know, when I write, I, I'm very proud of my work and I, I sit back and I read, I'm like, this is genius. The best thing in my case, <clears throat> and probably in most people's cases, is time, is to, to write a short story put it away for six months, and then go back and look at it with fresh eyes, so to speak, then the, the flaws will become more apparent and you can readily work and improve on, on the piece. Are so you Chris, an outliner or a writer of discovery or a combination of both? I'm more of a writer of discovery. Okay. So my wife is also a scientist. She teaches at Yale. She is very disciplined and very logistic. Mm-hmm. And so okay. <laughs> my first book, which I, I, I wrote a novel, it took me about five years to write it. And it turned out very different than my original idea because I kind of made it up as I went along. Was that right? And then, of course, what happened is, is I got to know my character better as, as I wrote. And then I had to go back and revise it because now I, I had a better idea of who my main character was. And my wife all the time is like, you got to outline, you got to outline, you got to outline. So for my second novel, a novel about a, a blind massage therapist called Rub It In. Oh, yep. That's the one I, I did outline. It. Now, I deviated from the outline, but I did outline it. And you know what? I, I just didn't care for writing in that process. Um, I'm a guy who likes to be surprised what happens in my own head. So, again, different strokes for different people. Yeah. I'm a slow writer because of this. You know, sometimes I'll write a story and I'll be stuck. And I, I have to give it a few days and I find, you know, like things like walking, you know, going for a walk outside, walking on the treadmill, um, holding yeah. laundry. That's my, well, yes. <laughs> uh, you, you know, usually at un, un, unconvenient times. Like Mundane I've things. had so many yeah. great ideas when I'm in the shower yeah. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. talking to myself. I was like, okay, don't forget this. This is, this is great. <laughs> this is a great, you know, maybe a turn of phrase. Like, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. And, and usually I do, but you know, um, uh, that's that's my particular process. So I, I do a little bit of both, but I am more of a, a you know, get writing at the keyboard and kind of see what happens. So, Chris, you've spoken a, a little bit about your aptitude in science, you know, that you, you, you seem to be drawn to it like a moth to a flame or something. But I haven't heard you talk about what you like about science. What did you like about science? What kept you to it? You know, many people, you know, they, they get bored after a while, with, but you, you you stuck with it. And I've stuck with it indefinitely, you know, if you, if you didn't become blind. So right, what, right. Did you, what did you really like about science? What drove you to continue your sort of pilgrimage in science? Well, I, 
I'm naturally an inquisitive person. And I have a scientific mind in that I want to understand why, how things work, why they work, what will happen if I do this or if I do that. Um, it, I've always been inquisitive. I could, you know, I could go on for hours telling you stories of things I did and blew up and <laughs> catastrophes. Awesome. Those are the stories you Those should write. Stories, about. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I, 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 I was maybe seven years old and, you know, I had a flashlight and my batteries ran out. And I just thought to myself, I wonder if I cut the cord on a lamp and split the wire and just touch the ends to one, to one side of the battery, one to the other side, if I can recharge it. And the answer is no, it will explode. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and somehow I survived various catastrophes, but, but I've always had an inquisitive mind. And, and that kind of leads into writing because I, I've counseled a number of, of what I would call new writers. And, and you, know, you, don't, you never want to squash their dreams. But, you know, I, I do tell them you have to learn about the craft. And, yeah. I, I'm, you know, that's why, again, I, I, I've read 25 books on writing if I've read a single one. I'm always, you know, I'm always trying to get better and to figure out why. And so as a, as a kid and as a young person, I thought chemistry could explain a lot of things. And one of them, if I'm, if I'm being honest, is I'm a diabetic. I lost my sight from diabetic retinopathy. I was diagnosed as a diabetic at age nine. And as I was growing up, I thought, you know, I'm going to be a scientist someday and I'm going to discover a, a cure for diabetes, um, which of course I, I never did. Although uh, when I was in graduate school, one of the things we had to do to, on our way to getting our PhD is propose original research. And I, at that time studied, and it, it's very interesting because this was, oh, 10 years before I was blind, uh, I looked into blindness and diabetics. And at that time, there was a, a class of compounds called aldose reductase inhibitors that they thought might be able to prevent complications, the complication of blindness in diabetics. And I proposed a series of molecules, because this was all hypothetical, that I would like to synthesize and test to see if they could help retard blindness and long-term diabetics or people who are suffering from diabetic retinopathy. Um, and as it turns out later on, Pfizer actually made, not based on my work, but independently, they, they made a couple of compounds that I proposed and they were duds, but um, it was still exciting. And so I don't know if that answers your question, Peter, but I've, I've always been inquisitive. I've always wanted to figure out why. One of the things, you know, it's funny, I, I'm a home winemaker and we don't want to get off on that tangent, but I also, I love to cook. Oh, why not? <laughs> and I like to, I like, you know, it, it keeps the chemist alive in me, but I also, yeah. I read a book a couple of years ago called uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And it really, it was fascinating to me because it broke down, like when you balance these things in food, they taste good. And so I started experimenting with, you know, putting vinegar in my food, putting sugar mm -hmm. in my food, putting more butter in my food, you know, just trying to optimize the taste. And, and that's how my mind works. I'm, I'm inquisitive and I'm experimental. So there's a, like the science of cooking would totally appeal to you. Um, yes. I could oh, tell absolutely. that any, any, you know, there's science in life. So, you know, that inquisitiveness is just, um, it's really, it really has um, brought you to many, many, you know, places <clears throat> of discovery. I think that's really right. neat. Um, 
Now, the interesting follow-up question, which you're probably thinking but not asking, is why don't I write science fiction? Um, <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> and, you know, I, I read science fiction. I enjoy science fiction. I have written science fiction, but it just it, it doesn't have a great appeal to me. Um, the type the, the type of books, and I read all I read all kinds of books. So, um, but I like I like everyday people in everyday lives in everyday circumstances with everyday problems, and how do they deal with these problems? Um, those kind of stories resonate to me, and so that's generally what I write. Although I've I've tried I've dabbled in horror, I've I've dabbled in romance, I've tried different things, you know, just to, just to try. Right. And you should, I mean, that's a, that's a way of expanding your, your authorly uh, horizons is to know what you write well and what you don't, what you love to write and what you don't. That's all part of the discovery of self and, and how, how you, um, how you relate to the world and, and to your craft. So. Right. So it is not unusual. Like in my first book, you know, the main character is uh, a scientist was a chemist. Um, because you know that's that's the right what you know aspect of life. Yes. <clears throat> yes. So so Chris, I am sort of curious about transitions. That's something that always interests me. So you, you get your PhD. Did you, as part of your PhD work, were you required to teach classes? Is that part of your yes. education? And what you what did you find? What did you like about or didn't like or like about teaching? Teaching those undergraduate students. <clears throat> I enjoyed teaching uh, for the most part. You know, I, I never felt a calling towards teaching, but I did enjoy it. What did I like about it? Um, I think I was pretty good at it. I think I'm I'm reasonably good at explaining things. And when you get the, you know, when you see the light go on in somebody's eyes when you're explaining to them and they get it, it's very rewarding. At the mm-hmm. same time, I can tell you a story. I so I <clears throat> I had to teach uh, organic chemistry lab, which is it's glassware. It's synthesizing compounds in the lab. And it's, it's you know, as at an undergraduate level, it's not too difficult to stuff. And one of the main things you do, so when you're doing a distillation, you know, you're, you're, you're boiling your compound in what's called a round bottom flask. So it's a glass flask that is round, it's spherical. And on top of it, you connect something called a condenser. And the condenser has cold water flowing around um, like a tube. So as the Fluid is boiling in the flask, it rises up, and then the cold water cools it back down and it falls back into the flask. So we used a condenser in almost every experiment in one class I was teaching. And at the end of the semester, the students have to check out. So they have to prove that they haven't broken all their glassware. And a girl came up to me and asked me, like, what's a condenser? And I just thought, I I failed. Um, This is the most basic thing, and she didn't understand it. Um, But, eh, you know, know, that could have been her. (laughs) <laughs> I took it personally. This was, this was a long time ago and I still remember it. And I'm like, oh, geez, this girl got nothing out of this class. Um, but that's, you know, my well, wife just, is a teacher and you just, know, I, she feels I, grateful I, to affect a number of people a year. Right. You know. Yeah. I, I want to go down this rabbit hole, if you don't mind, Chris. Did you hear about this elderly biochemist teacher who was fired because he wasn't sufficiently empathetic toward his students? Yes. Did you hear about yes. that case? What did, yes. what did you make? What did you, uh, so for those who don't know, this was a very famous, well accomplished biochemist, if I as I understand the story correctly. Yeah. And biochemistry, from what I understand, my dad was a was a biochemist and was a was a pre med advisor. It's just the hardest part of 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 any 
uh, pre-med uh, thing from, from, for most people. It's, it's the class that makes or break people in the, in the pre-med in many cases. I'm sure there are exceptions to everything, but that's what my dad always said and what I sort of experienced being around lots of scientists in college. So if this guy was a, was a really successful teacher, was well-respected, and um, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize. Yeah, he's, oh, wow. brilliant. This, he's this, like this guy big. was a really yeah. He's he's a he's a he's a big guy. Uh, pre and or I guess COVID and post COVID, he he the a, a minority of the students, the way I understand it, said this guy is not empathetic. He's not teaching us. He's making things way too hard. Yeah. And the the hmm. uh, the the uh, folks at was it NYU? I think it it's was NYU. Yeah, yeah. Said uh, essentially, you need to leave. And yeah. so my question to you, uh, given you know, your background, uh, is what, what did you make of all that? What did you make of that? What, what, do you have any thoughts about, uh, did it bring back any memories for you as a teacher in biochemistry, which is what, which is what raised, raised the question for me? What, what are your thoughts about that? You know, it's tricky. College can be hard. <laughs> and, you know, you have to work hard at it. And, you know, when, when I was an undergrad, so I had to take... Uh, three semesters of calculus and I think three semesters of physics and the math and like in, in calculus three and differential equations is very difficult. Yeah. And I remember like, I got a C and I was thrilled <laughs> that I passed. You know? Calculus made me cry every night. Right. I would come it, home and it, just you know, put my you head in my hands and cry. For that. So now I can tell you, and, and this isn't really my story to tell, but like, like I say, my wife teaches chemistry at Yale and she has students that will drop her class if they're not getting an A mm -hmm. and they're always complaining. Your class is too hard. Your class is too hard. Your class is too hard. Now, 80% of our students probably higher get either an A or a B, you know, A plus, A, mm -hmm. A minus, B plus, you know, but they're in that range and still they complain that the class is too hard and, you know, they come and they say the class is too hard and she can say, look, you know. 20 people got a hundred on this exam. So how can you say it's too hard? Um, so mm. I was shocked by this story, Peter, and I, I can't wrap my head around it, except for there was, a, there was a story on NPR that came out just a couple of days ago about how math and reading scores for United States students in high school have dropped dramatically yes. over COVID. I read yep. that. Yep. And yep. Yep. I... We know, you know, we know a lot of younger people and it was a young kid down the street who uh, is a great athlete. He got a he got a, a scholarship to Rensselaer Polytech and his first semester, he almost failed out because he was in, you know, he, he had COVID for the last two years of high school. And I think he was used to skating mm -hmm. because quite honestly, I think too many teachers and I, I don't want to speak negatively about teachers. My, my wife's a teacher. My son is a teacher, but and they have to be empathetic. But at the same time, you still have to press. You still have to learn. You know, you, you can't just let people slide. And that is, you know, I know in academia and especially in, 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 at the college level, there, you know, there's a lot of people are trying to be very understanding and sympathetic to the students. And while I agree with that to a certain extent, it's still it's still college. You still got to work hard, you know, just because, you know. You care <laughs> doesn't mean you're going to get a good grade. You yeah. know, you got to put yeah. the time in. You got to put the effort in. Um, and I think it's 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 somewhat of a tragedy that they had such a big wig, world renowned scientist as a teacher, and they gave him the boot. Yeah, um, yeah. It kind of it's like what does that say about you know his um, efficacy 
Uh, well, and maybe experience. he's a terrible teacher. You know, often yeah, could be. <laughs> you know, I mean, I yeah, don't. But, you know, it's one of the yeah. things. So again, so my my, yeah. my wife is uh, teaches college, and but she's never actually had a course in teaching. You know, she got her PhD in chemistry. She did a postdoc. She got a couple teaching gigs at Small Lake. She taught at Quinnipiac and she taught at Western Connecticut State University. So she got experience, but she never actually took a class in teaching. And she happens to be a really good teacher. And she works very hard at working to make sure that the student, you know, her goal is for everybody in her class to get an A. You know, that's actually a great day for her. You know, the yeah. days of, you know, you know, back in the 60s, you know, half of you were going to fail and half of you, were, you know, it's like that, those days are over. You know, her goal is to get everyone to understand that she's always revising her coursework and her instruction to make it more contemporary, to make it more understandable. So these kids get it. You know, her goal is not to fail anybody. Um, but having said that, you got to put the work in. You know, there's just so, no getting it. So, so, Chris, so, I, is, so, 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 I'm sorry, Annie. <laughs> look, look, give, give me a second because I'm really interested yeah. in what you just said. Because it seems to me a lot of what you said about uh, doing the work and having the grit and and doing the research and and you know doing the daily stuff is really what writing is about, isn't it? That's and what part, I was going to say, Peter. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, I, it, 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 and and I I was you know I always find it fascinating to build those bridges between things that don't seem to be connected, and I think this is one of them. Uh, Chris, what what do you what do you think? I would agree. Uh, you know, it, if you want to be a hobbyist, write whenever you want. If you want to be successful, you have to have discipline. Yeah, um, you have to. You know, I didn't, I'm not coming up with you. Know, if you put your butt in the chair, yeah. and you've got to put the time in. If, um, uh, this is it, to me. It's a, it's about not about finding something about your writing that's not right, and you know it's not right, and you know you need to work on it and fix it, and to sit down and do it, and right. and and make that make it work, um, and use the tools that you have to make it work. And if you right. don't have the right tool, go find it. Whether that's a person, <clears throat> whether that's feedback, whether that's taking a verse writing class, whatever right. it is. You know, know your skills and know what you're lacking and prove it and prove the crap. Well, and, you know, I can, I can remember early on when I was writing and reading about writing, you know, back in the old days when when people hand wrote their manuscripts, yes. they, they'd write a, an entire novel and then to edit or revise it, they'd write it again. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, oh, my God, that's that's crazy. Who would ever do that? Now, having said that, so I'm. I have a book coming out. It's called Morris coming out in, in about a month. And it's a collection of interlinked short stories. I wrote the first, I, I wrote them out of order to kind of keep them fresh. So, but the first story is called The Gift and I wrote it and I, I just wasn't happy with it. And it's a 22 page story. So I rewrote it in third person and I wasn't happy with it. And I rewrote it instead of from the guy's perspective, from the girl's perspective. And I wasn't happy with it. I re-envisioned the whole story and I wrote it from his best friend's perspective. So I wrote this story five times trying to come up with one that I thought worked and, and did well. And, and I finally did, but I put so much work <laughs> into this story and, and I'm not complaining. I just, I, I didn't want to, you know, I knew in my gut it, it wasn't working and I wasn't sure I, you know, of course I tried to fix it. I mean, it's, who doesn't try to fix it? You know, that's the easy way. Going back to scratch and starting over again is it's, it's hard work, but you know, but I want to put out a good product, and you know, and I that's what I did. Wow! So, and so I think there's so any substitute. Us, 
So, so Morris is coming out soon, right? It's going to be by the end of the year or yes, 2023 or <clears throat> no, no, hopefully in a, in a month or so. I'm not, okay. so like I say, I got the galley this week and I don't know how long it's going to take. I, I published through atmosphere press and I don't know how long it's going to be until it's actually, you know, for sale on Amazon. But from what I've read, it seems like maybe four or five weeks. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't take mm-hmm. that long. Yeah. So, so uh, let's let's uh, thank you, Annie, for for being so tolerant of my uh, veering in. <laughs> no problem. I, 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 I You're an investigator it. too. <laughs> I am. I am indeed. So you got your PhD, right? And yes. you you got this job working. What t- tell tell us about the sort of the job you had and what and what you did day by day, and then presumably through all that, you got married and had a kid, right? Well, I I actually it's uh, I got married while we were still in graduate school, so okay. my. Yeah, my wife and I were living together and we were both getting our PhDs. My wife graduated uh, maybe six months before I did. And we were looking for jobs in the same area. And what happened is she would go on a job interview and mention that, you know, she had a boyfriend and, you know, is there any work available for him? And, and what she got was a lot of, oh, it's only your boyfriend. It's not your husband. You know, who, who cares about that? Um so we we did get married in June 16th, 1990. Um, and then on maybe June 21st, she left me to go for a postdoc. <laughs> um, but then we worked, you know, we what happened is she was at the University of Connecticut, which is in stores, Connecticut. I got a job in Westchester County, not far from where Annie lives. They're about 90 miles apart. It was too much to commute. So we we did have separate lives for a year until we decided to start a family. So that's that's my family life there. So I was trained as a medicinal chemist. Uh, my thesis was on uh, the synthesis and evaluation of a series of anti-tumor drugs. I got hired by a company that is, doesn't exist anymore now called Sibagaygi. Uh, they're oh. a Swiss pharmaceutical company. I worked uh, doing research with antioxidants and so I worked in the lab, but I was uh, at a certain level where I oversaw another, a bench level chemist. And of course I went to meetings and I did this and I did that. Um, and it was a great, you know, it was a great job while I had it. I got to do a lot of traveling. I did some presentations at conferences. I got to go to Switzerland twice to meet with colleagues. And of course, while we're there, one time, like my wife came with me and we, we took a vacation and, you know saw all of Switzerland, which again, I was sighted then. And I was so happy to have that opportunity. And then when I went blind, you know, SIBA, SIBA would have liked to have kept me because I was pretty well regarded. And I did have a good knowledge of, of chemistry and the chemistry of the work that we did in the company. And they wanted me to go into customer service. But the truth is, I, I had no skills as a blind person, because I believed all along that I wouldn't go blind. You know, I just that those were my prayers is that, okay, I'm, you know, come on, God, you got to help me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, so, so you, 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 you had diabetes, all, you know, all the, all through your life, right? You, you knew you yes, had this yeah. diabetes and you must've also known you're a smart guy that, you know, blindness was, it was a definite possibility. It, yes. you, you never, so I, I get the whole issue of denial and, you know, it's normal behavior. I do the same thing. Um, uh, so, but you, you, you really, you didn't think that blindness might be a possibility. You had no sort of hint that it might happen or how, how, what was that like for you, you know, sort of making that adjustment? It was, 
it was very difficult, you know, mm-hmm. for any adult who was formerly sighted and loses their sight, you know, it, it's a very hard transition, especially because, you know, the day I got a letter from SIBA saying, you know, I was terminated was a very sad day because I thought, what am I going to do now? Mm. So I knew it was a possibility, but I'll be honest, you know, my life has always been good and I really didn't think it would happen to me. And in hindsight, what I would say is that I did get my sight back, but I have a different type of sight now than I did before. And with that comes empathy and compassion. Before I went blind, I never knew a single blind person. And there must have been blind people. I must have been, but I never saw them. I never mm-hmm. met them, yeah. never noticed them. Right. Now I know hundreds. I'm friends with hundreds. I know so many disabled people. I, I, not that I didn't know anybody with a disability, but I never really thought about that. And, you know, and I see them very clearly now. And the, the empathy and compassion I have for everybody and everybody's struggles is much greater than it used to be when basically when I was in the rat race, thinking about my career and, you know, what my next promotion was going to be and, you know, and having a family and a wife and a kids and all that. And the spin I would put on this on the transition part is today, I think of it as a blessing that I got to raise my kids, you know, because I lost yes. my job. I was home. I, you know, I, I, I didn't have the skills to get another job. At that time, I was also experiencing some some kidney problems. And so I became a stay-at-home dad and I got to raise my kids. And I'm fortunate that uh, I li- we live about a half hour from the elementary or a half, half a mile from the elementary school. So I practiced my mobility by walking the kids to school, walking them <laughs> home. I, you know, uh-huh. I, while I should have been doing housework, we played games and <laughs> we now... I had so much fun. And when it came time for them to do projects, I'll tell you, I love sixth grade projects because they're, they're right up <laughs> <I> my <know>. alley. <laughs> well, I, but, that's, yeah. that, that's, what, that's when you started getting interested in science, primary sixth grade, right? Seventh grade. <laughs> yeah. That was right yep. around that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's funny because so we, I used to grill ahead, my kids on science facts. And, and my, my son, especially, was very smart. But neither of our kids had any interest in being a scientist. And my son is actually a high school English teacher now. So, ah, Well, there you go. Yeah. Did yeah. you guys watch Bill Nye, the science guy? Absolutely. And um, who was the other guy? Um, there was another guy, an older guy um, that was on Channel 13. That was before Bill Nye. I can't remember Mr. his Wizard? name. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. Oh. Well, I think Mr. Okay. Wizard's from my childhood, not from. Yeah. My kids. No, no, they were they were Bill Nye the science guy. Yeah, they were Bill Nye, the, yeah. Oh, oh wow. You t- talked about a new kind of sight. You became blind, you lost your sight, you got something else. You talked a little bit about what that meant, but any other comments? What what does that new kind of sight look like to you? Well, I see the world differently. When I, you know, I base my judgments of people not by how they look, by but the words that come out of their mouth. I like I say I I would I would say I'm a much more compassionate and empathetic person today than I was 25 years ago before I lost my sight. I've actually developed a lot of patience and tolerance. Uh, where we live, there's a road called the Sawmill River Parkway, and 
I perfected my ability to swear when I used to drive up and down the Saltwood <laughs> Mill River Park. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. And while I miss driving, you know, oh, how I would love to be able to drive myself to the doctor or to the store. I don't miss that angry guy behind the wheel. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I've changed maybe. And that's what I mean, Peter, when I say I have a different kind of sight. I, I see the world differently. I see people differently. I see the needs of people much more clearly and, and I want to help, which, you know, I, we haven't talked about, you know, but I, I did, especially early on, I did quite a bit of advocacy work. Um, I, I got on the board of directors for our state agency for the blind. And I used to, you know, get friends to drive me to Hartford and go try and talk to legislators about, you know, getting more funding for the agency for the blind, especially for kids. You know, yeah. and uh, that's a whole nother that's a whole nother topic of discussion. That could be a whole nother podcast. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> right. Absolutely, advocacy right. and. But you know, yeah. you know, and, and I suspect that that second sight, as it were, or, the, or that new insight, really was what uh, it was. It was a gateway to to being a writer, right? You know, have, having yes. an empathy. I, I would imagine translated into your ability <laughs> and your and your interest in writing. And it leads into you know, I told you like. My, my favorite type of writing and my favorite type of reading is stories about real people and the, the struggles that we all face and, you know, hurdles are inevitable and how people face them, you know, a hundred people can face the same hurdle a hundred different ways. And yeah. that's what interests me is human nature and, and human, human kindness. You know, yeah. I think of how, how politicized our world is today. <clears throat> and of course, it's always been that way. But I also think of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Annie and I, uh, Jason, we don't live too far away from the events of that day. And th- the way that people reacted was just incredible. You know, the kindness that lies within almost all of us yeah. is, is truly impressive. And I like to try and tap into that now and then. Is that what Morris is about? Part of it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Morris. So Morris is 14 short stories and it's chronological. It takes starts in 1968 when a young man in upstate New York joins the Marines and goes to fight in Vietnam. And while he's in Vietnam, he gets injured and becomes disabled. And he comes home a vet with what we now call PTSD he didn't know what it was at the time, but like far too many vets then and today, you know, he crawled into a bottle. But he did learn how to work with wood and he built a guitar and he named the guitar Morris. And that's where the, the title of the collection comes mm. from. Then the next 13 stories are how that guitar gets passed, stolen, lost, <laughs> discovered. It, it moves hand to hand. The guitar is not the star. The, the stories are about people. And the, you know, and the, the struggles and the, 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 the greatness that they, they discover along their path. Um, but, you know, there's lots of hardships and uh, there's a lot of overcoming, you know, there, there's, there's no testimony without a test, right? So mm-hmm. those are the stories. And in the final story, and I'm not going to ruin it because I'm hoping some of you folks will, will read it. <laughs> 43 years later, the guitar ends up in a hand of a disabled vet who feels like his life is over because he was injured in Afghanistan. And he oh. learns to mm. play the guitar 
And by learning to play, he kind of discovers like, if I can do this, I can do anything. Mm -hmm. And that helps him start to rebuild his life that he thought was ruined because of his injuries while he was overseas. Well, it definitely sounds like a book I'm going to read. Yeah, me too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait. uh, I, I suspect that we uh, have questions from our <laughs> folks who joined us that I've been putting off uh, giving people the opportunity to ask. So anybody have any questions? This is an informal thing. Any yep. questions? I have, it's Maureen. I yeah, have Maureen. A uh, hi. I'd like to know if you ever thought of doing an audio book or do, reading your books as audio. I have. Um, so the problem with that is that I'm not a strong Braille reader. I'm a, I've been a diabetic now for going on 51 years. And so I'm blind. I've had a kidney transplant. I've got neuropathy in my fingers and my feet. So I'm not a strong Braille reader. And so I don't know how I could record fluidly. So like I, I've given talks and I don't know how you guys do it, but mostly what I do is I, I memorize. I've got, you know, God gave me a good brain. And so I memorize at least the outline of a talk if I'm giving a talk. Um, and then I just kind of wing it and, and do, the, do the best I can. Um, when it comes time to marketing my book, there's a, there's a short prologue to my book, and I'm currently working on memorizing it so I can pretend like I'm giving a reading. But the truth is, I, it's just going to be out of my brain. But you know, obviously, I'm an audiobook reader. I'm an Audible subscriber, and I resisted for years. I, I can almost kick myself because I figured, <laughs> why should I pay money for books when I can just get them from Bard or from my, you know, the, the Library for the Blind in, in Connecticut? But once I started su- subscribing to Audible, I, I, I love it because you can get, you know, you can get almost any book you want, and it's you, you don't have to wait. So I would like to have my book on Audible, and I might, you know, it's a, it, it costs money to produce an Audible book, but you know. If I recorded it, it might take me 70 hours and then have Jason stri- cut it down to six, you know, <laughs> and make me sound fluid. Yeah, you know, that's- Chris, we should talk. I could teach you how to do audio prompting and prepping your script and, and some of the, um, the, the stuff that I have in my laptop that's just like a native voice recorder and stuff like that. Right. That's how I do it. I don't memorize. I prepare things and I hear it in one ear and speak, speak right. it out. That's how I, that's how I narrated one of my books. I probably work on that, doing that. You know, I've thought of that, Annie. Um, I just have never done it. Um, Oh, it's fun. (laughs) Well, and it's, it's also, it's one thing to record a short story. It's another thing to record a 300 page book. You know, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. You'd Um, still have to find a good audio editor. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah. But, but Jason is such a person. So, you know, he, he could do that (laughs) if, 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 any, any other questions for, for Chris? Thank you, Maureen. This is Jason with a quick comment. I just love your story. And I mean, it speaks to some of your interests as well in hearing from other people or capturing that. But your resilience, how you took a very challenging situation and turned it around. I mean, maybe not in one day, but you turned it around and... I mean, just thrived. Look at look at what you're doing. Look at your attitude. I, I'm just, I just really enjoyed that aspect of of what you were talking about today too. Well, thank you, Jason. I I actually have to give all the credit to my wife um, because, and again, I I don't know other people's experiences, but I you know I had a great job. I was I just received a promotion. Everything was going my way when I went blind, and my whole world 
got turned upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah. I, I was depressed, you know, I was depressed. And because of my depression, my wife insisted that I go see a therapist and I went to see a therapist and they're like, well, we could put you on medication. I'm like, why do I want medication? Isn't it normal to be depressed? I just went blind. You know, I, I don't think, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's a chemical imbalance. It. It's, a, it's an eyesight <laughs> issue. Um, yeah. So I actually wrote an essay called, I think I came and it, it, it tells the story of a time that we went hiking. And so my, my, my son was four. My daughter was nine months old. I had her in a backpack on my back. And we went for, on a, a relatively easy hike in a park not too far away from us. And I wanted to hold on to my wife while we did this hike. And she kept telling me, use your cane, use your cane, use your cane. And I was, I was newly blind. And I just thought, like, why should I use my cane? It's, it's, it's so much easier if I just hold on to you, you know? Mm. And, but she insisted that I do it myself. And what happened is I, I tripped, I fell, I scraped my knee, I took the cane, I wrapped it around a tree <laughs> and we exchanged some very unloving words. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> and what happened is later on when we cooled off, she said things, she, what she said to me was, you know, I don't want our kids growing up feeling sorry for their daddy. Mm-hmm. And that was the arrow that pierced my depression, if I'm being honest. And I, I made up my mind. It's like, no, she's right. I, I can't be poor daddy. And so between that and meeting other blind people who were capable, competent blind people, and look, you know, there's a lot of people out there and, and everybody has certain skills and other skills. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we all know blind people that are awesome and don't let anything stop them and other blind people that sit at home and feel sorry for themselves. Um, I've certainly met both types and, and all types mm-hmm. in between. Yeah. So what I did is I, I was like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And maybe that's a personal arrogance, but I just, I just set out to learn how to be a blind person. How, how do I do this? And that's and, not arrogance. That's resilience. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I always believed I could, you know, and I look, I, I could, I could tell you stories. I, you know, I used to mow our lawn. We have a two story detached garage and I, I painted it and I, Fell off the ladder once, oh, and, uh, you know. I've, I've I've had a plethora of injuries, but I I do live by the the adage of pick yourself up and, and keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're out of way. That's a Get theme done. in all the stories in my book. Is that when you face hardship, you know, dust yourself off and, and keep going. And that's just the only way I know how to live. And uh, you know, it used to upset my parents that I I would be doing things. Uh, the the big incident. Well, so. I'm going to back in, in 2010, we had a very snowy year here in Connecticut. And at that time, there were stories in the news about homes and buildings, like their roofs collapsing because of the amount of snow on their roofs. Mm. So we had a lot of snow on our house. And my wife was very worried that something was going to happen to the roof of our house. So I called around and, and people were charging like 500, 600,000 bucks to clear your roof. And I'm a frugal New Englander. And I was never going to do that. So <laughs> in January, I got up on a ladder and I tied myself. I, you know, I put on a belt and I tied a rope around the belt and I tied that to a window sash. Uh, and I climbed that on the roof and I spent about seven hours shoveling our roof, much wow. to my family's dismay. Um, now, fortunately, I'm here to tell the tale, but that's just, that's who I am. You know, I, I want to keep going. And like my sister has told my wife, like, oh, Chris has to slow down. Chris has to slow down. He's getting older. He's going to hurt himself. I had a bad accident in April where, well, 
I had to call a neighbor who's a nurse. I had to go to the emergency room. Um, and, but you know what? I, I'd rather, I'd rather fall down dead than, you know, sit in my chair and rot. That's just, right. That's who yeah. I am. Um, mm-hmm. If you're being a person doing stuff that a person does, Hey, it's going to happen. It doesn't matter whether you're blind or not. Right. Well, and I figure, you know, encounter accidents all the time. It's and it is, I guess, in terms of not, relevance. Not that I think of it this way, but that's probably the best way for me to impact people mm-hmm. around me. Years ago, when I used to walk my kids back and forth to school, people would stop me sometimes and say, I, I know you, you're the guy that walks their kids back and forth to school. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Um, you know, or you're the guy that's walking down the middle of the street lost. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um you know, but I get out there and I do stuff and the world observes it. And, you know, and, and in that way, I think I, I, I'd like to think I have a positive impression on people. You know, I, I do a lot of volunteer work. I, I work at a soup kitchen here in Danbury twice a week, twice a month. Um, and I, again, by just going there and working and people seeing me do that, I, 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 I like to think it gives them a little, well, if he can do it, I can do it type of thinking. Um, I like to believe that too, and I'm sure it happens, even though you might not hear about it yourself. Oh, right, sure. right. It's an right. organic yeah, thing. It just, you know, it breeds upon itself. So, well, it, here's it's a funny thing because when my son was in college, he wanted to be an RA, and as part of his RA application, they asked him if he ever worked with disabled people, and he answered no. Um, <laughs> and only later did he realize, like, oh, I could have used you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You no, know, my daughter says my daughter's 30 and she says to me, Mom, you're one of the best blind people I know. And I'm like, oh God, what's she gonna say? And she says, Because I have to remember that you're blind. Right. Because you don't mm-hmm. you don't you you know, I don't I guess fit the stereotype. She goes, Well, they don't I think have, you know, that's yeah. that's actually a great it's a compliment because yeah. so another time yes. my, yeah. my son uh, he used to sing in an a cappella group and the, the guys had a gig in New York City, so they all stayed at our house. So there's like 12 guys at our house. And Nick told me, my, Nick, my son, told me later on, like all his friends are like, like, Nick, Nick, you never told us your dad's blind. Why didn't you tell us your dad's blind? And he's like, you know, I never thought of it. Um, yeah. Because he just doesn't think that. Yeah. He just thinks I'm his dad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and that's, that's a great compliment. That's the best compliment. Um, we are at 7 o'clock, actually, after 7. Chris, I, you said you had a website. Uh, yes, I do. So my, my website is, you know, www.chriscule.com, C-H-R-I-S-K-U-E-L-L.com. It's a little incomplete because, like, I have a page about my book there, but I don't have a link. But otherwise, there's, you know, there's there's two versions of the about me. I've got some sample fiction, some sample nonfiction. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm building it as I build my career adding links and interviews and you know if there's a, a link to this podcast for instance i'll i'll add that to the web page so it's 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 under construction but there's still a, a bit of material there oh, if you want to check out my work and of course i'm always available for contact cqul at comcast.net or csqul at gmail.com uh, is my author page but i don't mind giving you my personal information do you want to say something about uh, Breath and Shadow? If people want to get in touch with you in your capacity as editor? Uh, sure. Uh, well, the, the, the website is Breath, B-R-E-A-T-H-A-N-D, Shadow. A lot of people put shadows, but it's actually breathandshadow at gmail.com. We are a subset of Ability Maine, a nonprofit organization based in Maine. 
They're the ones that that pay our writers and and support us. And you can find us by just Googling Breath and Shadow or Ability Main and find our website to find our guidelines. We're a literary, we're a quarterly literary journal. You don't have to write about disability, but you're certainly welcome to write about disability. Our thinking is, is that all of all of the people who write for Breath and Shadow are at least their ideas and view on the world are formed somewhat by disability. So that is indirectly reflected in their work. And we're, you know, we're just looking for good poetry, good essays, good creative nonfiction, memoirs, flash fiction, fiction. We're even open to plays, although we don't get too many play submissions. All righty. Well, thank you. Um, Chris, oh, well, thank, thank you, so, you much. so much for having me. And can't wait to, to hear the finished product. Yes. Art Parlor is brought to you by Friends in Art and ACB Media. It airs every Saturday beginning at 8 p.m. Eastern on ACB Media 1. To listen and for a full schedule, go to acbmedia.org slash one. Art Parlor is also available as a podcast. Just search for Art Parlor in your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at artparlor at friendsinart.org and please feel free to check out our website www.friendsinart.org Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next month. Thank you.